0: Welcome to Sloanies Talking with Sloanies, a candid conversation with alumni and faculty about the MIT Sloan experience and how it influences what they're doing today. So, what does it mean to be a Sloanie? Over the course of this podcast, you'll hear from guests who are making a difference in their community, including our own very important one here at MIT Sloan. Hi, I'm your host, Christopher Reichert, and welcome to Sloanies Talking with Sloanies. Today, I'm with Ed Roberts, the David Sarnoff Professor of Management of Technology and the founder and chair of the MIT Entrepreneurship Center, now renamed the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship. He is a longtime expert uh, on entrepreneurial endeavors, and he was the co-founder of uh, my particular program at uh, Sloan, the Management of Technology Programme for which I'm very grateful, and he is a legend in my class and a legend at MIT. So welcome, Professor Roberts.
1: Uh, thank you very much for being the host. And uh, given that you're an MOT graduate, uh, I am going to entrust myself entirely into your capable hands.
0: You know, I sent an email to my class saying that I, I was doing this, uh, this podcast on today, and they were I got some very jealous responses back. So um, great to have you on board. Just I um, you know, it's one of those things when we, we talk about, back in 2003 when I started, um, the there was the news broke that the MOT program was being uh, merged with the Sloan Fellows program, um, and there was some, some gritting of teeth here and there my, amongst my classmates, but I reminded them that the headline is MIT, after that it's Sloan, and after that it's your program. So don't worry, we're all going to be okay in the end of this. Besides, we described it as um, as a reverse takeover, seeing as many Sloan fellows who traditionally were and still are probably um, sponsored by their organizations were looking for more entrepreneurial experience um, and potentially lying the whole entrepreneurial ecosystem outside of whichever organization they were coming from, whether it was the army or GM or all the sort of traditional large organizations. So we, we viewed it as a reverse takeover.
1: Without being asked yet, I would agree with you. And in fact, for years, I was thesis supervisor of the secret Sloan Fellows who weren't really sponsored by some major company and who were trying, who had to do theses in those days and were doing theses relating to entrepreneurship. Uh, And so I knew all of those Sloan Fellows who then became a very major part of the program and are now a very major part of the program and of the EMBA program as well. So it's great. I'm glad Sloan has more in that direction.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the hallmarks that um, that I think there was, uh, that I've noted over the years since since having arrived at Sloan and, and now being a, a graduate is the the constant change. And I think that that's something that you've noticed over your 50 plus years at, at MIT. So. Well, I just want to kind of step back to, to kind of where you, you started at, at MIT. And, and I, one of the ones, one of the, the um, I wasn't aware of this, but I, when I read um, your book and when I read more about your bio here, was your involvement with, um, with ARPA back in nineteen what sixty four was it that started out?
1: In 1964,
0: what was I involved with in 64? Wasn't it wasn't it the ARPANET that you uh, got you, you were involved with? You were you were uh, a, a fresh fresh out of MIT, um, and you were taken down to Washington right. and um, Oh, with ARPANET. Uh, yeah. No, we didn't work with ARPANET. We
1: worked with we worked with the space program directly with the office of the administrator. That's right with uh, Kennedy the Kennedy administration. ARPANET. Right was very important to the formation of the Internet. And MIT worked heavily with ARPANET in the earliest days of what became the Internet. That's uh, discussed in my chapter on the Internet, which I think is Chapter 9. But in the very beginning, in 1961, uh, either just before or just after, Uh, President Kennedy announced that we were going to indeed uh, launch something that was going to take us to the moon and safely return astronauts to Earth. Uh, Several of us ended up getting appointed consultants to the head to the administrator of NASA to determine did NASA have researchable management problems, and we spent the summer. It was very exciting summer, uh, interviewing. Jim Webb, the head of NASA, interviewing Von Brown, interviewing all of the key people traveling to Huntsville, traveling to Cape Canaveral then, pre-Kennedy assassination. It was Canaveral. Uh, and it was very exciting. And at the end of the summer, we wrote a proposal for what ended up becoming the very first research center in the Sloan School. And that was the NASA Organization Research Center number one. There had been no research center at Sloan prior to that. and I love the, the number one in, uh, at the end of it. Yeah, number one, because they <laughs> basically were saying, and they did, follow up, not quickly, but followed up over the next several years, establishing comparable organization research centers at other universities. Uh, two years later, they created NASA Aerospace Research Center, number one, in the aerospace department at MIT, And again, they did the same thing that they later started to replicate that at other places. And indeed, the relationship between those two centers was instrumental to my getting into entrepreneurship.
0: So I read your book um, since we we spoke a few days ago. And I was, well, simultaneously overwhelmed, pleased that I kind of recognized so many of the players and names and the stories, uh, and that at least I had them straight in my head, at least on where it was but i was also struck by how the role you played ever since you you were at mit and since staying at mit of sort of being at the right place at the right time and and so i guess my question to you is is that how much is that you creating your future and your opportunity and how much is it just kind of you know luck and timing and circumstances and and having the right people around you
1: i think both things are the case the fact that i got into working with jay forrester in the founding of the system dynamics group was uh, aggressiveness on my part. I was an undergraduate in electrical engineering. I was overloading in the Sloan School. Uh, it wasn't the Sloan School, it was the School of Industrial Management, uh, heavily overloading. I was taking up on average uh, two overload classes a semester and being yelled at by my course six advisor, but I was doing it anyway. Uh, and in a, in a Sloan course, uh, the instructor said, "You guys, meaning probably the bulk of the students who were engineering students, not not management students, you guys think you're hot shots. We just brought in the guy who invented the computer as one of our faculty. And I'm sitting there next to another course six guy and nudging him and saying, what the hell would would von Neumann want to do <laughs> coming here? Because we would have credited John von Neumann at Princeton as being the person who invented the computer. Well, being as aggressive as I have always been, I raised my hand and I said, who is this person who invented the computer that's coming here? And he said, well, Jay Forrester. I said, oh, okay, thank you. And turned to to my buddy next to me and laughed because we knew who Jay Forrester was. Jay Forrester had the patent on the magnetic memory core. Jay Forrester had developed the whirlwind computer. Jay Forrester was in charge of Division 6 of Lincoln Lab, which was the systems division for the SAGE system. Jay Forrester was a famous technical guy at MIT. And I was astonished. That this guy would be leaving Lincoln Lab in his career as a great technologist and coming to the management school didn't make sense to me. So it happened. I had an hour free at the end of that class. And I, with my (laughs) unaccustomed boldness, went up to the fourth floor of E-52, into the dean's office, and said to the secretary who greeted me, I understand that Professor Forrester is now here. Could you tell me where he is located? And she said, sure, young man. He's just down the hall, four offices, and you'll find him down there. I walked out of the hall, been greeted by another secretary who said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm in electrical engineering, and I just heard that Forrester is going to be here. Is there any way I can meet with him? And she said, well, uh, what do you want to talk to him about? I said, well, I really want to understand better why he's here. She said, well, just a moment. She knocked on the door, opened the door, went behind it, closed the door, came out a few minutes later and says, Professor Forrester will see you. Well, I walked in and met the great man and introduced myself. And uh, he was very pleasant. How can I help you? I said, well, I'm trying to understand. Are you here to bring computers to management? And he said, well, no, I'm here to bring systems to management. <laughs> I, of course, smiled and nodded, not having a clue as to what he meant. But it didn't matter. I nodded. I said, oh, really? That's great. And he said, well, how are you doing in Course 6? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm trying to think about what in the world is systems that has anything to do with whatever he's going to do here. And he then does the terrible thing of asking me, well, what kinds of courses are you taking over there? And I said, well, I'm taking this course on, and it had the word systems in it. uh, And it was digital systems or something rather. Oh, that's by my old friend, somebody named. And I said, oh yeah, that's my professor. How are you doing in that class? (laughs) I said, well. I think I'm getting an A. He said, oh, that's good. Why don't you go tell him when you next see him that I sent my regards to him? Very nice person. Well, (laughs) what else uh, can I do for you? I said, well, I'm a junior, and uh, a year from now, I'll have a double assignment in electrical engineering co-op with GE. And by that time, I may want some advice as to what would be interesting to do, especially if I were interested in working with you, could I come back and see you? And he said, be glad to see you. Okay. A year later, I showed up and chatted with him. Uh, he said that one of the things, well, I had two offers from GE. One was to do software development and advanced uh, software in small aircraft engines in Lynn. And the other was to join the new General Electric Computer Division in Tucson, Arizona. And if I did that and took a double semester assignment, they would pay for my airfare. That was extraordinary. (laughs) That's a big win. This was 1957. uh, And I said to Forrester, Does it matter? which job I would take. He said, well, either one would be fine, I'm sure, but we're probably going to do some software development if you are really still interested in doing things with us. So having software skills would be good. I immediately went back to the headquarters office for electrical engineering co-op and said, Jay Forrester says I really ought to take this comp- this software assignment in Lynn. Now, what was my real motivation? My real motivation was I didn't want to leave my girlfriend, <laughs> now my, my wife of over 60 years, uh, by going out to Tucson, Arizona. And I didn't want to leave all my clubs or everything else. I was fraternity vice president. I was I was head of the Activities Council of MIT. I was head of the Debate Society. I didn't want to give up on all those things to be spending time out there. So uh, Gene Baney, I remember the name, was head of the – of the Office for Electrical Engineering Co-op and said, I will call the people at GE and I'm sure they will respect your desire to have this assignment in Lynn." Now, there was me pushing. Yeah. Getting into this task force to work as a consultant to the head of NASA was a total surprise. (laughs) And you were
0: quite young. You were 27, right?
1: I was not. I was 25 in the summer of 61. Um, yeah, I was going to be 26 in November. So this was the summer of, of 61. And uh, I suddenly get a call from the dean's office. Uh, and we'd like you to join a meeting of us tomorrow morning at whatever it is without being told what kind of a meeting it is. I walked in, and there's the dean. And the dean was Howard Johnson. Uh, And there is uh, Don Marquis. Don Marquis was a previous department head of psychology at Yale and at Michigan, very distinguished scientist. You know, strange for Sloan because he really didn't seem to fit. Uh, Then there was Bernie Muller time. Bernie Muller time was a very senior ex-McKinsey consultant who taught the Sloan Fellows organizational strategy. And I knew who he was, but I never talked to him. And the third person was John Wynn, who was an ex-Sloan fellow, was deputy dean. And I knew, because I had done uh, done some teaching of the Sloan fellows, I knew he had been an uh, ex-Air Force Systems Command Sloan fellow. So these three guys, the dean and me, and I don't have a clue. Why am I in this room? And the dean says... I just came back from Washington where I had a meeting with Jim Webb uh, and the president of MIT, James James Stratton, uh, Jay Stratton called me and told me I should get down there and see him right away and that he wants to find a relationship to MIT. Just make sure you tell him we don't do consulting, we do research. Uh And this is Johnson bringing us up. He says, I met with Webb and we decided that we're going to appoint a group of a task force to study the researchability of NASA's management problems. And uh, if you guys accept this task, you're it. Now, to me, I have to this day no knowledge of why I was in that room. I don't know who sent me. I don't know whether Don Marquis, who was my... uh, Maybe boss, sort of, because I was interested in R&D and he was nice guy. Or Jay Forrester, who I would have thought could have been a great member of that. Forrester could have decided. Nobody ever told me why I was there and I was the punk. Uh, and three senior guys and me. And the next week, we were on a plane to fly to Washington to meet with the head of NASA. And we go in, and we're waiting in the uh, we're waiting in the outer lobby, and we're greeted by a guy named John Young, who tells us that he was the McKinsey guy who wrote the organization report for the creation of NASA, on how it was going to be pulled together, uh, and he introduces us to a guy sitting in the room in the waiting room for his turn. I don't remember his name, but it was a very strong German name. And he says to him, these gentlemen from MIT are here to advise Mr. Webb on, the, on how the organization of the space program should be handled. Very grandiose. <laughs> that isn't exactly what we thought we were supposed to do. This guy leaps to his feet and makes a speech about Wernher von Braun. And how Werner in the old days only wanted to get to the moon. And Werner wanted to always get to the moon. It turns out this was yet another of the Pinamundi. Those who are young don't know what Pinamundi was. Pinamundi was the place of the V2 rockets being developed by Germany, which half-destroyed London. And Mm -hmm. Werner von Braun was the head of the group. And they now all had been grabbed by the United States and were in Huntsville, Alabama as part of the Army. And uh, this guy is now selling us on why Vernon Röder. And John Young laughs and says, no, 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 no. I don't really mean that he's going to pick the one to run this. He's going to give him some guidance about issues of management and organization. And he said, oh, okay. And he sat down. So right away, the picture was set that, hey, whatever we're going to do must be seen as very important. And we then get called into Webb's office. Well, NASA was located in an old, beautiful building on K Street that had been converted into space. And in his office with a big desk, he had a full wall window behind him. And you look past Webb and you saw the White House lawn in the White House across the street. And you say, oh my God, remember, I'm a 25 year old kid. I don't know anything about this stuff. And near the center yeah. of power here. Webb is banging on the table and saying, I charge you, us, for, with the responsibility for determining how we should move forward to this new adventure. The space program is not the last of this kind of thing. The coming together of government, industry, and academia to launch and to cope with the major problems of society, this is just the first time it's going to be done. Pounding on the table. Well, you can imagine how I felt, and then spending the whole summer. We spent the summer, we went... When we went to interview Von Braun, Webb sent to, said to us, I don't want you flying down to Huntsville on your own. I want you flying to Washington, and then you will fly to Huntsville in my private plane. I want those guys to understand where your role is coming from. Wow. I mean, optics matter. I mean, this is, so we spent the summer meeting everybody, talking to everybody, uh, learning from the mouths of those people who were now trying to evolve a space program what this was all about. And we ended up writing a report, and the report recommended the kinds of research we could be doing at the School of Industrial Management. We might have been Sloan by then since uh, Johnson was uh, was dean, uh, later Johnson became president of MIT, Uh, And we submitted that, and it was approved by MIT, and it was sent to NASA. And then in August, I get a telephone call from Howard Johnson. Ed, come on down to my office. Okay. I come down, and Howard says to me, in August, I mean, we started in June. This is August. Howard says, Ed... I understand you're doing a wonderful job of helping in the work that's going on in this task force. I said, "Well, thank you, Howard. Uh, I appreciate that. It's really fun and it's really enjoyable." He said, "Well, my understanding is you're making a lot of contributions." I said, "Well, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that. Uh, maybe I understand a little bit more about engineers and engineering than the other guys do, just from being in electrical engineering and a co-op student at GE for semesters." He says, "Well, in any event." we've decided to make you an assistant professor. I looked at him. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, uh, we've decided to make you an assistant professor. I I said, but uh, I'm a doctoral student now. He says, yeah, yeah, but you're about to finish, aren't you? I said, well, Howard, I mean, I hope I'm going to finish by the end of this coming year. But I'm not even sure of that. And he puts his hand on his chin, thinking a little bit, and then he's made up his mind. He now turns back to me, grabs my hand, shakes it, and says, we're delighted to welcome you in as a faculty. So, I mean, if if one checks carefully my resume, my resume has this clear question mark, because it says I became a faculty member in 1961, and I got my PhD in 1962. People have said to me, You got a typo in your, in your <laughs> resume. And I, right away, I know what the typo is. I said, No, it's not a typo, it's true.
0: That it, it reminds me of the, uh, my father tells of, of getting into Harvard Graduate School of Design. He arrived in September in 1956, I think it was, in Cambridge from Germany, yeah. off the boat on a Fulbright scholarship, and walked into the dean's office and asked if he could start. He had his, his credentials in front of him. He had been city planning director of Offenbach in Germany. And the, 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 the dean said, well, I mean, the classes have already started. And meanwhile, there was, there was, I don't know, drinks passed around and they had long conversations and the dean happened to be German. And two and a half hours later, handshake, and in, in my father went to classes the next day. That doesn't happen very much anymore these days. So, Right. And that's what
1: people say that to me about, about the notion of a dean shaking your hand and saying you're an assistant professor. To this day, I have no clue as to the process that, that, that one doesn't share that kind of information. Right, so right, there probably is, is no direct answer. through a personnel committee meeting, how, how do I know? Hey, okay. there is no question, I know what the process is. I've been part of the process for years and years and years. Was the process similar? If so, somehow I was vetted and processed through a process of multiple faculty making judgments That despite the fact that I didn't yet have my PhD done, that it was okay to make me a faculty member. So there, I neither knew about nor pushed nor had a role of aggressiveness in becoming a member of the task force. I performed my job. I was part of that and the like. So I have a mix of things between things that you make as opportunities and Mm -hmm. things that somehow accrue.
0: I was I was uh, thinking of the you know people look at, at Bill Gates and, and then and Steve Jobs and whatnot and think wow what geniuses they were to foresee the future and and uh, and be the right place to do it and and I look at it and say well they made the future right so in some ways they had the first mover advantage because they had a vision for what they wanted to create whether or not the world would embrace it or not was really to be seen so I have a question for you about when over the years, and in, in in the stories that you told uh, in in part one of the book, um, and then the, the companies in part two of your of your new book, which by the way is uh, celebrating entrepreneurs, how MIT nurtured pioneering entrepreneurs who built great companies, out on Amazon and hardback as well. Um, how much do you when you, when you're listening to students who come to you for advice, or you li- you listen to? Entrepreneurs or companies that are maybe started something and are looking for the next phase of growth or even a direction in where to take the company. How do you discern whether you think that this uh, they've got what it takes to either get themselves out of the thicket that they're in now or um, or grow rapidly in, in in the space they've created?
1: I don't know about growing rapidly. Growing is enough of a challenge, but growing rapidly is a super challenge. I was thinking most about, like, first mover advantage. Right. So I I would, I could tell you very different kinds of things. The first thing I would tell you is if I were in the situation of making an evaluation of some individual or group of individuals, to me, maybe quite different from other people, my first focus is on who those people are, and I'm going to really work hard at trying to identify their primary personal characteristics. What I want is straightforward. Number one, I want dedication and motivation to beat the band. I want somebody who can stand up to being argued with, uh, told that it's a lousy idea. I want somebody who has such strong motivation that I can sense This person has the possibility of lasting long enough, because I know the data. The data say to build a great company, it's going to take a decade or more to build a great company. Now, to build a company, you may have a company underway in a few months, and you may be operating and you may even get funded in in a year or so or sooner, but to build a great company, to build a great company, that's what the book says, pioneering entrepreneurs to build great companies. To build a great company, you need a decade as a minimum. Are you going to be able to last a decade? First question becomes motivation, persistence, resilience. Resilience is a little different. Resilience to me means can you get up after being knocked down and continue what you were trying to do? That's different from can you persist at trying to hold the course? So but that's person. Second thing is if I'm now looking at the person or group of persons. I'm going to ask questions about trustworthiness. Uh, Is this somebody that I can believe in when I hear that person say something? Related to that is the other side. Will this person take criticism? Because they're going to have a lot of problems. Are they going to be able to cope with someone that is a mentor, a board member, an investor, and Take criticism and turn it into something that's positive to meld it into the base of the company. Can you take criticism? Then for me, if I'm going to relate, if I'm going to invest in this as an angel investment, I've made 150 angel investments and I've been on 30 boards. If I'm going to relate, then my question is, can this person and me have a honest, open, open, relationship that is sustained over an extensive period of time where we're going to encounter differences of opinion, disagreements, arguments, and the like, where I'm a tough guy. So I want to state my opinion openly and I want somebody to state back a responsive opinion. That's not to say I want them to agree with me. That'd be stupid because they're supposed to be smart people understand better what they're doing in terms of their field, their opportunity than I do. I want them to say, hey, what about this? And they are going to come back. So, if you don't have that, then I'm not interested in anything else you have. Now, beyond that, we start looking at the objective things that a typical venture capitalist is going to look at, which are all the characteristics of the company itself. And I got my own list of those. But, You know, one of the key things about this is lasting long. The second key thing about this is uh, being innovative. What do I mean by being innovative? Again, the book title says pioneering entrepreneurs. Pioneering entrepreneur isn't a copycat. Mm -hmm. Pioneering entrepreneur isn't somebody adding an increment of advance. A pioneering entrepreneur is one who is laying the groundwork to do something new and novel. Now, how new, how novel, and in what ways? Number one, MIT, hey, the largest number of novel, pioneering MIT companies are pioneering in technology. They should be. The technology is pouring out of every department at MIT. Okay. Are they merely looking for an advance? If so, it's okay, that's fine. They may be able to last, but who cares? It's not going to be a great success as a company doing that. Are they now saying they've got a view of how to come up with a very different perspective on this that is quite different? I'll give you an example that relates it today to COVID-19. Uh, I, I've been an investor from the beginning in Flagship Ventures. Flagship Ventures was founded by Nubar Fayin, neubauer Fein was the first PhD student in biotechnology processing from MIT. In the last semester of his doctoral year, he says, and in the book, I'm quoting everybody exactly as to what they said. He says, I snuck over, I always have raised questions with him about those words, I snuck over to Sloan to take the only course that related, and that was Ed Roberts' course in corporate entrepreneurship which the MOTs were usually required to take. Uh, <clears throat> and persistence, I listened to his, You had to apply to me to get into the course because we had massive overload. And you had to write an application. So he comes in, <clears throat> excuse me. I interview him in depth and I say, well, Nubar, it's terrific that you're so highly motivated, but I'm rejecting you for the class. And he says, why? Why? I said, you don't know enough about management to be able to do the final project in this course. The final project, you have to get into at least one company or an industry and do a really in-depth analysis relating to some aspect of corporate entrepreneurship. You don't understand enough about businesses and management to be able to write that report. So you would flunk the course. No, 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 no. This is really important. I need to take this course. And I said, okay, okay, okay. Answer is no, because I would flunk you in the course, and that's irresponsible. Bye. Goes away. He comes back a week later, makes an appointment to see me. He has now read everything in the entire syllabus of the course, and he is ready ready to go hunting beer, and he is arguing with me as to why he's going to be able to do this and why he can handle this, and everything's great. And I finally keep pushing, and I start laughing. I say, okay. I say, okay, tell you what. I'm going to admit you to the class. I'm admitting you on one thing only. You are so motivated and so dedicated. It's conceivable. You might do something plausible. But in general, my thoughts are, you're still going to flunk the course, but it's now your responsibility. The end of the story is I gave him an A-plus in the course and rated him higher than any of the other 80 students in the class, and that began 30 years of friendship. So I've invested in every one of his venture funds over the years. Mm -hmm. Three weeks ago, not three weeks ago, three months ago, he has an announcement. They release things whenever they're spinning out a company out out of their work of a company called Moderna. And the words that he uses about Modena are the most extreme words I've ever seen him use in talking about one of their companies, as to how spectacular they are, and how unique their capabilities are, and the like. Well, three weeks ago, Modena was announced as being ahead of everybody else in the development of... Uh, a vaccine to cope with this with the COVID-19 virus, and the next announcement that comes the next week is that the federal government is going to put up $500 million to provide manufacturing capabilities to have Moderna be the first into the market of being able to produce a vaccine. And yesterday, Dr. Fauci mentioned Moderna as being the principal reason why he believes we will, in a relatively short period of time, come up with an effective vaccine. And yesterday, they also announced the approval of Moderna for finishing phase two. Okay, now, from my point of view, there it is, it's technology. It's uh, merely MIT, but it's technology that is really staking new grounds. okay. If we depended only on companies whose innovation was technology, we would leave out a lot of other companies. So what else could you innovate in? Well, how's about innovating in the market? We have a lot of students that go home to their foreign countries and are copycats of U.S. companies that have never been in their country, such as Sohu.com. I co-founded Sohu with Charles Zhang, a PhD in physics, whom I never met until he came to my office to tell me he wanted to go home to China and start an internet company. We spent six months discussing it, going through all the fundamentals of my getting to the point of feeling good about him. And now he's a copycat. What's he going to copy? He's going to copy Yahoo, which has done all these things in the United States. But there is no internet company in China. Everybody says to me, Ed, you're out of your mind. What the hell are you doing involving yourself with a Chinese company? They don't have a rule of law. They don't have any marketplace. Why are you doing that, Ed? And I said, because I've done stupider things in my life and I believe in this guy who said to me as a, when I was pushing him, and I kept pushing, why do you really want to go home to China? 1996, he says to me, China is going to become a great nation, and I want to be part of making it great. I mean, those are words that take and knock you over and say, no, I either believe it, in which case this guy is a phenomenon, or he's just full of bull. And so, of course, I pound and pound and pound, and then I conclude. "He really means that. Okay, so he copied... We could go check the history of Sohu in China. It essentially looks like a Yahoo replication one after the other, except Yahoo was smarter than we were. They stopped moving into new, into new areas where Charles Yang thought he could be everything to everybody, and he mm-hmm. went into many areas, and we ended up not having adequate focus. Now, having said it, we grew to be a multibillion-dollar company, then gradually fell apart. And it it's starting now to rebuild again after a long... I was on the board for 20 years as co-founder. By the way, in a Chinese company, the oldest person in the room is the one who gets most respect. Yes. And that was- and the fact that I was co-founder, all board meetings carried out internationally were carried out in English. I was the only member you? of the board who was an American. All the rest became Chinese once we went public. The board meetings were carried out in English with translation for the Chinese people, until somebody would just all of a sudden holler out in Chinese some message. And then I would—I knew I'm supposed to just be quiet until they finish. And then the CFO, who was from Hong Kong and spoke perfect English, would say, Ed, let me tell you what he said. And he would explain it to me. We would discuss that for a moment and we would return to our all English meeting. So, I mean, there's a case, the market was totally new right, for something that was already well-defined and well-developed. Okay, I'll give you a third kind of thing, technology.
0: Well, actually, let me just ask you two questions on that before we get off that. You In your book, you talk about building great companies, and you also mentioned patient capital. Um, and, I, and you talked about a, a sort of a 10-year time span for, you know, for really getting, you know, Creating a company is easy, so to speak, you know, but sustaining it over many years is another. So my question to you is this: so in you know, there's been a lot of criticism over the last, let's say, ten years, of you know, the huge companies like Facebook and Apple and Google um, and Amazon who see fledgling companies with promising technology, snap them up, take them off the market, and in some ways they stunt the growth of that company as a separate company. But of course they they grow through acquisition in and of themselves. Kiva, I think, for, as an example for Amazon. And there are many, many other examples. I guess my question is this. No pack
1: is Amazon.
0: No pack, exactly. So what do you think that impact has on kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs who, well, first of all, their motivation might be for a quick exit. So in other words, and, and their thinking might not be longer term foundational growth. Um, and the second one is they, they themselves are taken out of a leadership position, relatively speaking, to running a company versus a division. And how do they, how does the, how does the entrepreneurship bug keep growing in that sort of, if that quick chopping pace is, is are, the norm? Those are very good questions. So first,
1: you need to be confronted with some fact. It has always been fact that more companies that were successful were purchased as opposed to went public. Fact. So that's uh, not All right. of our naive students don't understand that, but that's fact. In all generations, purchase of the company as opposed to IPOs and independence of the company has been the primary. The IPO has been secondary, been present. Okay, having said that, I agree with you that the aggressiveness today for growth strategies by the large firm through very aggressive acquisition strategies is a very important and maybe increasingly important thing. I don't think we've yet assessed whether or not that has acted in a meaningful stifler of of those aspirations to grow a great firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It depends on what you define as a great firm. You know, how big do you have to be before you're great? And if you want to be independent and be multi-billion, significant multi-billion in size, you may well get grabbed up by somebody who sees you. Now, if you remember what I taught in my corporate entrepreneurship class... I taught three things for large corporations to consider as entrepreneurship. First was internal entrepreneurship. How Mm -hmm. do you cause people inside your firm to have greater degrees of independence in in coming up with standalone and the like? Secondly, I talked about aggressive acquisition strategies. How do you acquire companies primarily to amplify what you have internal capability to do? And, The primary area that I thought was opportune was technology. Why? Because younger companies have more advanced technology than older companies do. So I was arguing that what's happening today is precisely what ought to happen if you were running a corporation. And the third thing was the slightly back off one lesser, which was alliances. And alliances were always to be with younger companies that have complementary technology where you have marketing capabilities to market the products and capabilities of the firm. That was an alliance. They were still independent, still developing product. You weren't absorbing the technology. You were adding it to your product capabilities and selling it to the market and the like. And you were growing as a large corporation. Now, in the latter case, the small company was still growing. In In the middle case, the small company was absorbed and you know their lifetime stopped. Now I'll tell you the end result of being absorbed. You run the company maybe for a year, maybe for two. On rare occasions, you become a major executive of that firm, and you go up, and you are in charge of that. And if mm-hmm. really good, you may become very significant to the company, and eventually take over the leadership of the company. So you transform from entrepreneuring the creation to now entrepreneuring while you are taking over somebody else's company in the other cases you leave what do you do after you leave well you may take a rest for six months because you've got a lot of money in your pocket and you're really tired after all of those years and then you're going to start an next company and guess what the data say second companies do better than first companies third companies do better than second companies that's our data now Something had to have happened with the first company for there to be a second company. Either it fell apart or it got bought by somebody or it went to IPO and you were kicked out or pushed out or or decided to leave and do it again on your own. Now, we have new data. The new data that was in our last report that we released is about a category that we never used to talk about. We call them joiners not founders, joiners. And a joiner is somebody who coming out of Sloan or MIT deliberately seeks a young company to join despite the fact that she or he is thinking about becoming an entrepreneur eventually and decides they want to sample the experience first and sample the experience while getting paid. They may not be getting paid as much as they would if they were working for a big firm, but they're getting paid. And they're learning a lot by being part of a relatively small, relatively young firm. Our data say, and this is now already data because we don't know what it eventually will be, already in our sample then, 38% of the companies, of the people who joined as joiners of the alumni, not as founders, formed their own companies afterwards. And the company formed by a joiner outperformed the companies that were formed by somebody who had never had the joining experience. Namely, it's a very good learning experience. You don't have founded the first company you could have joined through the first company. And for you, your second company is the first one you
0: founded. The first one is the first one you
1: experienced.
0: So how do you see, uh, how do you see uh, graduate level business education at Sloan evolving from here? Uh, I guess there are two, two, two contexts that I'm thinking about. One is, you know, in one of the threads that I noticed in your book was the rubbing of shoulders, so to speak, that the entrepreneurs met each other. They, they, they knew each other, whether, you know, socially or professionally, uh, but the point is that they kept rubbing shoulders with each other until, until they decided to do something together. That's a
1: way, but you just said something very important. Because now you're saying that the formation of the relationship between individuals preceded the specific idea that led to the company. I agree. That's one of the ways by which cohorts come together. They come together on relationships they have usually the same values, the same priorities. They believe in the same things. They may be very different in complementary sets of skills. The coming together of that relationship causes marriage in two ways. The marriage we know about, usually under that name, and the marriage I know about when I talk about co-founders coming together, deciding they want to do something together. They then spend their time trying to figure out what do we want to do together? And they will now go into search mode of trying to think about what would be an interesting company. To, I'll give you an example. Mass challenge. All right, John Harthorn. John yeah. Harthorn. John Harthorn was a star at Sloan. John Harthorn was in the UNI track and was one of the students I admired most in the second year at Sloan. John Harthorne. Uh, won the 100k as a second year sloing John Harthorn chaired the global startup workshop running 100k tutorials all around the world okay John was wonderful John came to see me in my office six weeks before the end of before graduation to tell me that he wanted to talk to me to tell me that he has decided he cannot go ahead and start a company and I said well, I would have assumed you're thinking about it. Why can't you start it? He said, Ed, I have a wife, I have a baby at home, and I have student debt of over $100,000. It would be irresponsible of me to go out now and start a company where I'm drawing no money or trivial money. I need to get a job where I can make some big money and at least start to pay off my big debt. So someday you'll see me, but not now. Okay, guess what his problem was? His problem was he graduated in 2008.
0: Two problems, debt and the economy.
1: Okay, so consequently, he went to work. He was a real hotshot. He went to work either for BCG or Jet Bain, I don't remember which. And in the Boston office, there was another Sloney. Well, obviously, it must have been a hot shot to have been hired directly by them. And they had very little work to do because they weren't generating a lot of revenue in those days. They didn't have a lot of clients. They were bored as could be, and they hated the work they were doing. And John said to me that they used to grouse with each other every day about how miserable their life was sitting there and that they ought to get the hell out of there And he said, one day, we finally said, okay, today is it. And the two of them went to the head of the office and said, we quit. They went out, and the first thing they did was to sit down and start to think about, think about, what kind of a company can we start together? And they went through all kinds of ideas. And then Harthorn said, hey, wait a minute. He won the 100K. He knows what it takes to win something like that. He ran the Global Startup Workshop. He knows how to deal with people all over the world about assembling a competition like this. Why don't they go into that as a business? And they came up with the idea of the Mass Challenge as a for-profit organization. And they tried to raise money. And they couldn't raise a penny in that financial market to do a for-profit Thing that was so crazy, so different, so unique, so pioneering. Nobody wanted to give them money. In the course of conversations, someone said to them, "You know, if you were a nonprofit, this is such a neat thing to do. I'd probably throw in some money to help you guys out." And they rethought the question and decided, "Okay." They're going to start Mass Challenge as a nonprofit. And lo and behold, Deshda de gave them money to help them get started. Someone sent them to an office of the Secretary for Economic Development of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, who said, What a wonderful thing to do to help in our recovery, and gave them a grant of $100,000. And lo and behold, Mass Challenge was underway as a nonprofit organization. And they grew like crazy to be yeah, the greatest accelerator in the world globally and the like. And by the way, John Harthorn last year left and this year has formed a venture capital firm.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I'm conscious of time and I want to I want to ask two two questions, two more questions of you. You know, normally I ask um, recent alumni what their uh, favorite memory from Sloan is, or what their favorite professor was, or if they had a do-over. But so, two, so two, the two questions I have for you is, um, what are you most excited about right now in the entrepreneurship space? And what excites you most, say, over the next 12 to 18 months? Okay,
1: so I would say that the last chapter of our book expresses my, and Bill allett and, and Bill allett is a phenomenal partner as managing director of the Trust Center, Uh, I would say that the last chapter expresses our hopes for more than the next 18 months, but rather for a much longer period of time than that. And that hope is that what we've been seeing as trend continues and becomes more dominant. The trend, clearly, and we can document it, has been that over the past 10 years, we have slowly, steadily been seeing meaningful growth of female entrepreneurship, That's the clear trend that's visible in our counts. We count it. We count it in the enrollments in the ENI track. We count it in in the participant group in the Delta V, which is our best uh, measure of real excellence. We count it in the people that are succeeding in the 100K. Women at MIT, at all levels, grad students, postgrads, undergraduates, at all levels, Women are trending upward in a meaningful way. And in the book, I report that the one disappointment of our prior studies was the fact that we were not yet seeing meaningful trend. And in the last chapter, I'm saying we're seeing it. So that's first. Secondly, other minorities, racial minorities. We have, again, been seeing growth of racial minorities as entrepreneurs. I would suggest to you that in some ways, a racial minority is like an immigrant. The data on immigrant role in entrepreneurship is very impressive. And it says that somebody who has come from a particular situation where they, in a way, had to prove themselves and where they had to go into somebody else's turf to succeed Mm -hmm. seems to be a very important, motivating thing. And immigrants are extraordinary performers and, and are very overrepresented among entrepreneurs of all sorts. I begin to think that we're beginning to see that thing happening in the United States, especially in the black and Hispanic communities, but in in other immigrants as well. Now, I think we do have some problems in the country these days, besides COVID-19. We have problems of how we deal with immigrants of all sorts, and how we deal with people from other countries and the like. And I think in the book, I say specifically that if we looked at our data, there are things we would do that would really dramatically help our own economy while we're Mm -hmm. also in the process of helping everybody else's economy as well. Because a good substantial part, increasing, of our foreign students are going home. And going home, more likely to be entrepreneurs than to take conventional jobs because they don't have good conventional jobs available to them, especially if they come from a developing country. So in the last chapter, we take and we put together four examples of companies that we see as foretelling a future. Now, I'll tell you the terrible data that we have. Three of the four are headed by women. In the fourth company, women are active within the co-founding group. Number two, that we tell you, three of the companies are located in Africa as their headquarters base. Now, one has a new headquarters in in California as well because they're now going on a global market, so they decided they're going to have a U.S. headquarters as well as an African headquarters. The fourth company is headed by a black guy, and the only company headed by a male is headed by a black. If you look at his co founders, his co founders look like the United Nations. I mean, they are all ethnic minorities from very different areas and the like. Three of those companies are working what I would call social agendas. They're Mm -hmm. working social entrepreneurship agendas. Uh, The fourth one is not. It's a straightforward logistics play and uh, software applied to logistics being very impressive as to what they're doing and the like. So I take that set of vignettes and say I am hopeful that we are going to be able to strengthen those trends as we move forward. At the same time, I don't want to minimize the number of sloanies in particular who are coming towards MIT Sloan School from the outset saying they want to uh, be entrepreneurs. Rod Garcia is my best source of data. I don't have access to the data. I don't know what applications say. I only know what ends up in the pot. Rod Garcia says better than 50% of the applicants to the Sloan School talk about entrepreneurship as being the or a primary attraction to becoming coming to the Sloan School. I think that's terrific.
0: That is amazing.
1: We, we have for ages, from the beginning, the E&I track has had overflow of people from the very beginning. And our problem has been, I believe, we've been overly rough on them, largely because we haven't been able to settle down with lesser demands and lesser requirements. In a way, I plead guilty, lesser demands than I make of the people that I work with myself. So that's excellent. A, a lot. We're asking them to do things that aren't being asked of them in the finance or ops management track, and maybe we're wrong. Uh, you know, maybe we ought to be lessening the demand set, or maybe somehow we ought to make those extra demands voluntary instead of required. But you know, I'm <laughs> I'm a hard ass, and I have always been. Uh, in part in part because I was groomed initially by Jay Forrester. And Jay Forrester was a hard ass. And uh, to please him, you just you couldn't please him by, by being hesitant about undertaking a lot of work, tough work and the like.
0: Well, on that note, I'm conscious of the time and I want to um, thank Professor Ed Roberts, the uh, David Sarnoff Professor of Management of Technology and the founding chair of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for your time today and um, i i would uh, encourage people to apply to sloan to take advantage of the the challenges that, that professor roberts is throwing out just there at the end about new entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurship um, and if you in any way can be part of his orbit then that will be a great benefit to your life so thanks very much professor thank you
1: so much for giving me this opportunity to talk with you and hopefully through you to talk to a large number of, of others as well and i am a Sloney both with a regular master's degree, when you had to do a thesis, by the way, uh, as well as having been a faculty member at Sloan for longer than any other faculty member at the Sloan School to this date, And really, I love the place as a place to be. And it gives me such an opportunity of working with people
0: the likes of you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks to you. Bye. Sloanies Talking with Sloanies is produced by the Office of External Relations at MIT Sloan School of Management. You can subscribe to this podcast by visiting our website, mitsloan.mit.edu slash alumni, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Support for this podcast comes in part from the Sloan Annual Fund, which provides essential, flexible funding to ensure that our community can pursue excellence. Make your gift today by visiting giving.mit.edu sloan. To support this show, or if you have an idea for a topic or a guest you think we should feature, drop us a note at sloanalumni at mit.edu.